Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect workshop, Medical Update on the Treatment of Lung Cancer in the Asian Community. And this is the first time we've offered a program for the Asian Community on Lung Cancer, and it's a really important topic, and we have just wonderful speakers today. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and we've also partnered with the Asian American Network for Cancer Awareness, Research, and Training, AANCART, um, actually to kind of reach out to all of you on the program today. Now, we have on the call today over 446 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Japan, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world. And it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's activity was made possible by Boringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of this particular program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker um, is Dr. Heather Wakeley. Dr. Wakeley is Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Oncology, Stanford University, Stanford Cancer Institute. Dr. Wakeley, who actually has spoken on many of our programs on lung cancer, is going to present an overview of lung cancer in the Asian community, including the standard of care, novel treatment approaches, including EGFR, targeted treatment therapies, biomarker testing and understanding common mutations, practical recommendations to cope with common targeted side effects, treatment side effects, including diarrhea, rash, and mouth sores. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Wakeley. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be on this call and uh, getting to address this really important topic. So my um, practice, as you just heard, is in Northern California, and at least half my patients are Asian, Asian Americans. Um, and so this is a really relevant topic to me. Um, really addresses uh, some key questions that come up within my patient community. So I'm a medical oncologist, meaning that um, most of my treatments are going to be the targeted therapies or chemotherapy. Um, however, I think it's important to talk about lung cancer in all stages of disease, not just an advanced stage, which is uh, the patients I normally see. So when we're dealing with lung cancer in the Asian community, by and large, it's not that different than lung cancer in any community. The differences lie in the mix of types of lung cancer that we do see. So um, in the Asian community, we do tend to see more of the adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer, but that is the most common type of lung cancer overall. Uh, we also can see squamous cancer and small cell cancers as well. It's important to bring up the issue of smoking in relation to lung cancer because smoking does remain the primary cause of lung cancer in most people. However, especially in the Asian community, there's a very high percentage of people who do develop lung cancer who have never smoked. Um, and so I, I just wanted to bring that up because smoking and the stigma associated with smoking still becomes an issue with lung cancer and people, people being willing to speak up about it, talk about lung cancer, raise awareness of lung cancer, and work on better ways to treat lung cancer. And November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, and so I am um, delighted that we have such a strong participation in this call and, and people thinking about lung cancer and what we can do to continue to fight this disease and help the people living with it. 
So without moving into what is, what is the treatment of lung cancer and the standard of care, when we talk about lung cancer, we think about it in different stages. So the stage one and two lung cancers are the ones that are caught early before they've spread, and we're going to focus on doing uh, usually surgery or focused radiation, um, hopefully to cure. Um, with stage three, it tends to be a bit more advanced in some lymph nodes in the chest, and the focus there is going to be treatment usually with chemotherapy and radiation and maybe surgery. And then advanced stage disease is where it's spread, and we're hoping to keep people living, living for an extended period of time, and, and that's most of the people I treat are living with their advanced stage disease. So when we focus on the differences in treatment for patients with cancer, we've we think about dividing it up by the type of cancer, so that's the adenocarcinoma type, squamous cell type, and others, and then there's things like small cell I'm not going to talk about as much today. And how is that relevant for the Asian community versus other communities? And the main difference lies in the fact that in the Asian community, we are able to subdivide those cancers a bit more. For adenocarcinoma type of lung cancer, we no longer think about it just as that subtype of non-small cell lung cancer, but we divide it up even further. And the way we divide it up is by the genetic changes, the gene changes in the tumor. Now, these are not found in the rest of the person. They're only found in the tumor, and they're what allowed the cancer to develop. Some genetic change occurred that gave a cell a particular advantage to keep growing, and that fueled the cancer. The one we think about the most commonly is called EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor. And that actually, that particular gene mutation is found in a very high percentage of patients who are Asian or of Asian ethnicity. In fact, in some studies, if you look at women who have developed lung cancer who are Asian and who have never smoked, over half of them are going to have a gene mutation in EGFR, in that particular protein in their cancer. And so this is why it's so relevant to think about in the Asian patient population. We'll also see it in men. And it's not just in Asian patients. It's also seen in others, but it's predominantly found in patients who are um, in Asia or of Asian ethnicity. But that's not the whole story. We also have something called ALK, A-L-K, or anaplastic lymphoma kinase. And that's also found in 5 to 10% of patients with adenocarcinoma of the lung. And it's also more often in people who have never smoked. It's more commonly found in patients who are Asian or of Asian ethnicity. Um, that is also found almost equally in men versus women versus the EGFR, which we find have found more in women. And then in the past few years, we've identified even more of these gene mutations. There's something called BRAF and HER2 and many others. I won't go into all of it. But the reason I'm emphasizing this is that when we think about the cancer in relation to those gene mutations, that's where the treatment really changes. And that is mostly true in people who have metastatic or advanced stage lung cancer, but it's also true in people with earlier stages of lung cancer. I'm going to talk about that more in relation to the more advanced or metastatic lung cancer first and then talk about it in early stage. So, why does this matter so much? It matters so much because if we can find a gene mutation, it changes the treatment options we have for a patient living with cancer. It changes it such that we can use drugs that are specifically targeted to that gene mutation as opposed to the standard traditional IV chemotherapies. And most of these targeted drugs are pills, so you can, you know, it's, a, it's a completely different way of, of treating the disease. 
And the, what's the standard of care now is that if a patient is diagnosed with metastatic or advanced stage lung cancer, the first thing that we do after identifying that under the microscope and saying, okay, this looks like a cancer, is we send the tissue for genetic testing. And that testing can come back sometimes quickly, like in a week. It often can type two to three or even four weeks to get those results back. And that time of waiting for that result can be particularly stressful, but it's very important because except in rare circumstances, most patients are going to be able to wait that little bit of time to help us know the best treatment choice. Because if we find specific EGFR mutations or an ALK translocation, instead of starting on the standard chemotherapy, we actually are going to recommend a patient start with a pill drug. And we know that when we find the gene mutations and we choose a pill drug, the patients are going to be more likely to have a response to that drug and to respond quickly and actually to have that response last longer than with chemotherapy. And so that's why we really like to figure that out because we can drastically change the options that we have to treat people. There are several of these EGFR drugs. They're called erlotinib, gefitinib, and afatinib. There are three of them all approved in the United States and a lot of work being done to help them work even better um, but they work quite, quite well. And with the ALK, we have a pill drug called crizotinib. There's also one called seritinib and others that are likely to get approved soon. And all of this work has been figured out just in the past 10 years. Then in the past few years, there's been significant developments in figuring out, well, when that first set of drugs, when those aren't working as well, we now have the next um, the next line of pill drugs that can work when the first stop working. So lots of research happening, lots of important developments to help people live longer and longer, even with metastatic advanced stage lung cancer, particularly when we find these gene mutations. Now, what does that mean for early stage cancer? Well, for early stage cancers, surgery or focused radiation is still the most appropriate and standard treatment. However, when we found one of these gene mutations, there are now clinical trials being done trying to figure out if those targeted pills can help improve cure rates. So far, we don't know if that's true or not. The trials so far are, are not definite, but there's big studies going on in the United States right now. There's one called the Alchemist trial for patients where they've had a cancer removed by surgery, where the testing is done to look for EGFR or ALK, and if it's found, there's a, a study then looking to see if those pill drugs might help people be more likely to be cured. For stage three, which is when it's spread into the, that mediastinum or the central part of the chest where surgery is not always possible, there's a study looking at using those targeted drugs before patients get combined chemotherapy and radiation to try to cure. So we know how well these drugs work for patients with metastatic disease. We're now trying to figure out if we can improve treatments for early stage disease in the appropriate setting when there's a molecular target. So there's lots of very, very exciting work happening there. Another thing I want to bring up, because it's been a lot happening in the last few months, is around the new immune therapy drugs. They're called PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. And research looking at those drugs actually started in Japan, but it's been done worldwide, a lot being done in the United States as well. And we now have two drugs. One's called pembrolizumab and one's called nivolumab, two drugs that have been approved to treat advanced stage lung cancer in patients um, who have previously had chemotherapy. And the way those drugs work is to rev up the immune system response to chemotherapy, sorry, the immune system response to the cancers. So far, 
we know that those can help patients who have previously had some chemotherapy. We don't yet know if they're going to be better than chemotherapy for patients who have um, never received any treatment. It's really not clear that they're going to be better than these targeted drugs I've talked about for patients with EGFR mutations or ALK translocations in their tumors. But there's a lot of work being done looking at combinations, combinations in settings where there is a, a known mutation within the tumor, um, combinations of other immune drugs. And so what we know about lung cancer therapy today is changing very, very quickly as we have these new types of treatments. And these immune therapies are working regardless of ethnicity. So these are important not just for the Asian community, but for all patients who are living with lung cancer and really completely changing the way we think about lung cancer and how we treat lung cancer. Um, and so there's a, a, a lot happening with that. Um, as far as the biomarker testing and understanding mutations, I've, I've mentioned that for someone who's newly diagnosed with advanced stage lung cancer, we do now recommend getting that testing, the biomarker testing, done right away. And that involves taking some of the DNA from the tumor and doing special testing to look for those gene mutations. For the um, immune-targeted drugs, we're still trying to figure out how best to test for that. There are PD-L1 tests available, but there's a lot still we need to understand about those tests because they don't always agree with each other. And some of the drugs are approved without having to do the testing. So that's a whole other hour-long talk, and I'm not going to go into all of that now. But just so you know, it's important to ask if you have a cancer diagnosis or know someone with a cancer diagnosis with lung cancer to make sure that they've had the molecular testing done and to ask um, about whether immune therapy is the right thing now or later. Now, when we talk about the immune-targeted agents and when we talk about the other targeted drugs, the side effects are different than what we see with chemotherapy. With chemotherapy, we're used to thinking about hair loss, or, which doesn't happen with all chemo drugs. We're used to thinking about nausea and low blood counts, potential risk for infections. With the pill drugs, the side effects are different. We worry about rash and diarrhea, potentially mouth sores, so that's less common. Diarrhea is usually pretty easy to manage with oral medications to control it. I just urge people not to be afraid to take them. For the rash, um, there are specific medications, antibiotics, that can really make a difference, um, and also using the right kind of lotions, lots and lots of skin lotions. Um, I like to work a lot with our dermatologists who have an expert expertise in that, but it's really just awareness of rash and potentially dose reducing if that rash becomes a problem, but having open discussion with the oncologist about it and your care team, and not being afraid to lower the dose if necessary to control the symptoms. The same thing with the mouth sores. Um, so these drugs can make a huge impact in treating patients living with lung cancer, um, and it's really important to look to find out about those gene mutations and whether they exist in the tumor so that the right treatments can be given, and then to work with the care team to make sure that the side effects are tolerable, which they usually are. So this is a really exciting time in lung cancer treatment. We've made a lot of really significant advances, and there's a whole new wave happening with all these immunotherapies as well. So with that, I'm going to stop and uh, turn this over then uh, to Dr. Sung. Thank you so much, Dr. Wakeley. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful uh, presentation on lung cancer in the Asian community and just a lot of very important information. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Arthur Sung. Dr. Sung is Director, Interventional Pulmonology and Bronchoscopy, Associate Chief, Innovation and Strategy, 
Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, Stanford University School of Medicine. And Dr. Sung is going to address lung cancer screening in the Asian community, the importance of genetic testing, the role of clinical trials, and communicating with the healthcare team about your follow-up care plan. It's my pleasure now, really, to turn this program over to Dr. Sung. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, as uh, mentioned, my name is Arthur Sung, and I also practice in Northern California. Uh, the lung cancer uh, statistics and the disease itself, it's very near and dear to me, being born in Hong Kong and growing up in an Asian society. And also, prior to moving back to Northern California, I actually practiced in the Asian community, specifically in Chinatown, for about six years or so. And in that time period, I do see a whole spectrum of various disease or patients affected by various stages of lung cancer that now, excitingly, are helped by tremendous push of different uh, therapy that Dr. Uh, Wickley has mentioned. I think that for me personally, as a pulmonologist who deals with lung cancer quite um, frequently, the most important literature that has come out for us is the lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is a very important modality, analogous, and even in many cases supersede uh, the effectiveness of breast cancer, cancer screening or even colon cancer screening. Just to be a little bit more granular, uh, in about a couple of years ago, the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial commenced a trial of, uh, concluded a trial of about 53,000 patients, and they found that for the patient who underwent a CAT scan that's low dose in a group that is specifically high risk, and I'll explain that a little bit later, that CAT scan is able to find earlier stage lung cancer where we can offer a curative therapy such as, such as surgery. The reason is for that being is that lung cancer staging is the most important predictor of how patients do in terms of their ongoing treatment for lung cancer. As Dr. Wickley mentioned, lung cancer goes into various stages, and the most common type of lung cancer is adenocarcinoma. For patients who have traditionally stage one and stage two, these patients can undergo surgery and with possibility of chemotherapy, and they derive the best benefit in terms of overall survival. And also now, and I'll talk a little bit more later, because of the tremendous um, advancement of treatment in terms of genomics or driver mutation that Dr. Wickley and her colleagues is able to offer this patient, we do see a significant response rate. Just to be a little bit more specific, how does lung cancer screening help? Well, in terms of um, people who undergo CAT scan, we actually found that there is a survival benefit of lung cancer-specific mortality of 20%. In, in, in another way to look at it is that in order to save one life, we need to screen about one, 300 CAT scan patients to able to save one life. Now, that number may not sound to be overly too impressive, but if you look at the overall statistics of lung cancer, that there is actually more than 200 new cases of lung cancer diagnosed in the United States alone in 2014, that is a very powerful tool. However, given that excitement, 
it is actually extremely important for us to talk with the community for patients as well as primary care provider. Because while cancer screening is extremely important and helpful, we also need to understand some of the pitfalls. For example, because of the highly sensitive nature of CAT scan, we are able to pick up very small nodules, even in the nodule size much less than one centimeter. And most of, the, most of those nodules that's picked up by cancer screening turns out to be benign. In effect, actually one in four patients who undergo and decide to do lung cancer screening, such as a CAT scan, we do find patients do, to have a lung nodule. And we do understand from a physician standpoint to, be, to, to tell a patient who undergo a CAT scan for the purpose of lung cancer screening that there's a spot that's being found, it can be quite an anxiety-provoking event. So I think that the importance of lung cancer screening, why I'm a big proponent of it, is that we need to have a very good talk with the patients and educating the community of primary care physicians to understand that while lung cancer screening saves lives, it also has a lot of um, untoward possibility that you can find a nodule by accident. And the best thing to keep going for those patients is actually to keep going on um, making sure that those nodules are stable over time. So the majority of people who are found to have a very small nodule continue to have surveillance CAT scans to make sure that those nodules are stable over time. So it, uh, my message is that while lung cancer screening is important, it is also not helpful if you don't belong to the highest risk group. And that group is defined to be, at this point, uh, defined to be pa patients who smoke for a total of 30 pack years smoking, meaning on average that they smoke for 30 years of one pack per day, and they're between the age of 55 to 70. There are different society that actually increases that age limit to 79, and I can foresee that in the future, more and more patients can be considered to be beneficial in terms of inclusive, in terms of recommendation of lung cancer screening as well. So my next topic is to talk about the important genetic testing. Uh, needless to say, uh, this is a very important topic for Asian cancer. Because as Dr. Wakeley said, while the overpopulation can be one in five people who never, uh, that actually do carry this, uh, any type of mutation that can be actionable, in the com Asian community, that rate is much higher. As a pulmonologist, while we are confronted with a CAT scan that is abnormal, the first thing that we want to look at is looking at the clinical staging based on the CAT scan. If someone has a lung nodule that is suspicious, we may refer that patient to have a biopsy done to find out if it is lung cancer or not. But the more important thing, in addition, is to look at whether there's any lymph node that's involved because lung cancer staging is most predicted and in terms of how people do in terms of lymph node involvement. And what we do is using minimally invasive tool, such, such as using a flexible camera while the patient's asleep as an outpatient procedure to sample either a nodule or a lymph node in a about half an hour session to get as much tissue as possible. While that may sound very promising, it is also important for us to keep three important topics in mind. Number one is that 
we need to make sure that we're doing the right procedure for the right patient. If a camera is really too small, they may not be able to reach a nodule sufficiently, and we need to refer to either a surgeon or radiologist to get the right sample. Number two, why we do decide to get a sample by using a flexible camera, for example, we need to make sure not only do we need to diagnose what the abnormality is, whether it's lung cancer and also whether there's adenocarcinoma or different type of lung cancer, we also have to keep in mind that we need to get sufficient sample to be able to yield the type of genomic mutation so physicians such as Dr. Wakeley or surgeons and radiation oncologists can make the right decision in terms of patient care. Lastly, which I think is the most important in terms of genetic testing and also the role of clinical trials, is that how do we actually minimize the time in terms of finding out that there's an abnormality on the CAT scan or a PET-CT scan and doing a minimal invasive procedure and have a very short turnaround time? I think that the days, the, the days that you wait for a long time up to three, four weeks should be gone. We should be able to efficiently get the patient in after they are told that they have a normal imaging study get them to a procedure suite, do it safely, effectively, get the right tissue, and have a short term turnaround time. What that means is that we really need to communicate with all the people that's involved. That would be the thoracic oncologists, people who are medical oncologists, but also our cytopathologists and pathologists. They are the people who process the material. They have to both diagnose the type of cancer under the microscope as well as getting the molecular genetic drive mutation information for people such as Dr. Wickley to treat the patient. So um, for that, I think that using minimal invasive tool to effect the ability for clinical trials to happen, namely getting the staging and then the molecular profile is great, of great importance. Lastly, what I want to talk on is really integrating the pulmonologist who hasn't traditionally been involved with cancer care too often, but for pulmonologists who do a lot of this type of uh, minimal invasive procedure is to be really involved with both the community, the physicians, internal medicine, primary care, as well as the thoracic oncology team. Every patient who comes into our center, it's really a patient that's shared by all of us. We really should not look at the patient in a vacuum in terms of how I see the patient that should be done, how to be biopsy, but really bring up the whole spectrum of the approach of biopsy, whether someone's really a appropriate candidate for surgery, or really at the point that we feel that genomic mutation or personalized medicine, it's important that we effectively get the patient into the procedure suite to get the driving mutation as well as the diagnosis as early as possible. So um, with that said, I also want to uh, pause at this point and uh, turn over to the next speaker as well. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Sung. That was really ex exceptionally excellent, and we thank you for being on the call, and we will have questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is... Um, Ms. Joan Hope Elizondo, and Ms. Elizondo is Adult Weight Management Certified Senior Clinical Dietitian and Outpatient Thoracic Center, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Elizondo is going to address nutritional concerns and tips. 
it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Elizondo. Well, thanks so much for having me today. Um, we'll be discussing nutrition concerns and hydration during treatment. Um, in general, we want everybody to have a healthy, balanced diet during and after treatment. But today, I want to give you some tips on how to manage your side effects of treatment since nutrition and maintaining your weight is so important. Um, first, I would like to discuss a little bit about some side effects of uh, diarrhea. Um, sodium and potassium are lost through diarrhea, so you want to try to eat some foods to help replenish that. And that would be maybe soups, pretzels, crackers for the sodium, and maybe the inside of potatoes or bananas to help with the potassium. Uh, you can also try G2 or Pedialyte, some of the electrolyte drinks. Um, also, avoiding high-fiber foods like beans, seeds, whole grains, high-fiber fruits and vegetables, uh, limiting high-fat foods, things that are really greasy, fried, and also avoiding alcohol, caffeine, spicy foods, and hot fluids because that can um, cause food to move more quickly through your intestines. And you want to make sure to drink adequate fluids, which we'll discuss a little bit in more detail uh, in a few minutes. Um, if you have nausea or vomiting occurs, you may want to try small frequent meals, maybe six to eight times per day, just to keep something in your stomach. You want to try dry foods like crackers, toast, cereals, and avoid greasy or spicy foods or things that have strong smells. If you have or if you eat foods that are cold or room temperature, that might help um, decrease some of the odors, which may be more appealing. And some people feel that lemon drops, ginger candy, ginger tea, mints help with the nausea. Um, if loss of appetite occurs, um, that sometimes also ends up with weight loss, which we don't want. You want to eat every two to three hours, again, small frequent meals, and things with high calorie and high protein. So some examples of that would be peanut butter crackers, cheese and crackers, uh, maybe smoothies, some nuts. And you definitely want to take advantages of the times you're the hungriest. So if you're hungry in the morning for breakfast, you want to eat a little bit more then. And sometimes doing light activity like walking before a meal might also help with your appetite. Um, I guess a few more examples for high-calorie foods are things like honey, dried fruit, um, avocado, some of those instant breakfast, um, the nutritional drinks like Boost, Ensure, um, and things that are high in protein would be your turkey, chicken, pork, fish, eggs, soy milk, tofu, nuts and seeds um, may also be um, some things to try. Um, if mouth sores occur, you want to make sure to have soft, moist, easily to swallow foods, and you want to avoid acidic or spicy foods that may irritate your mouth. Um, you can try cutting up your foods in small bite-sized pieces. If that is still irritating, you can always puree or liquefy your foods with um, you know, putting them in a blender, maybe mixing it with milk or broth or some sauce. Um, you may even want to try if, if spoons and forks are causing pain, you can try drinking it through a cup or through a straw. Um, you want to avoid maybe really hot foods or really cold foods. Maybe, again, things at room temperature might help. 
um, doing those nutritional supplements like Insure Boost, Carnation Instant Breakfast. Uh, you can try making your own smoothies and limiting caffeine um, and drink plenty of non-caffeinated beverages to help with um, dry mouth and prevent dehydration. And then, of course, you can always ask your uh, medical oncologist about you know, the mouthwashes and medicines and things to help with, with pain. Um, and for hydration, drinking plenty of fluids. Most people need anywhere from 8 to 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid per day. Um, and fluids won't only include water, but it also includes juice, um, smoothies, soups, sports drinks, popsicles, um, anything that becomes liquid at room temperature. Uh, and just remember that everybody is unique and you want to discuss your particular situation with your dietitian or medical team of what's best for you. Um, thank you for your time and I look forward to the questions. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Alessandro. That was very informative and helpful around questions that people always have about what to eat, how much fluid to take in. So thank you. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Mr. Wynn Burkle. And Mr. Burkle is an oncology social worker. He's Director of Social Service, Long Island. And he's a Lung Cancer Program Coordinator for Cancer Care. Um, and Mr. Burkle is going to address um, Cancer Care's free psychosocial services, um, how to access resources and support networks, and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Burkle. Thank you, Carolyn. You know, I'm, I'm sure most of us remember the, the time that we moved into our first new home, or even our last new home, and I'm sure we wondered how we were ever going to find our way in this new community or neighborhood. Many of us were fortunate enough to get a visit from the welcome wagon or maybe a very helpful neighbor who f helped us to find the nearest supermarket, service station, house of worship, school, and all the other services so essential to support our daily life. The more things we were able to connect to in our new neighborhood, the more we felt that we had things under control. You know, being diagnosed with lung cancer is in some ways very much like moving into that new neighborhood. Our cancer pushes us into a very strange and sometimes scary new environment, and we really don't know where anything is and what we can do to get some control over a very difficult change in our lives. Cancer Care, in the role of that good neighbor, provides its popular website, lungcancer.org, to better serve people like you. Rather than burden folks with heavy medical jargon, lungcancer.org has been designed as a first stop for people who find themselves in the new and strange neighborhood of lung cancer. Using simple-to-understand language and a user-friendly web page format, lungcancer.org helps patients and those who care for them learn about the basic facts on lung cancer and its treatment. And there is a special section on clinical trials, which not only helps one learn what they're all about, but also provides a special search tool which can assist in finding the lung cancer clinical trial that matches up each patient's individual situation. And if a patient wishes to become involved in a clinical trial, there is a tool that allows them to connect with a specially trained clinical trials manager to help them with that whole process. In addition, lungcancer.org serves as an easy entrance to connect with the many services which Cancer Care has available free of charge for lung cancer patients and those who care for them. Services in include educational services. Cancer Care's impressive array of Connect Education workshops provide both disease-specific information, such as today's workshop, and workshops on coping with the physical and emotional impact of lung cancer. Replays of these workshops are available both online at Cancer Care's main website, 
www.cancercare.org and via your phone. Many find it convenient to download these replays to their iPods and MP3 players. Cancer Care's well-known Cancer Care Connect booklets are available free of charge and are packed with up-to-date information on treatments and the latest coping strategies to help cancer patients and those who care for them. To date, we have distributed almost 3 million of these very popular publications. Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org provides a wealth of information on cancer topics and serves as an easy-to-use entry point to Cancer Care's many services. While one is at our website, they can sign up for our free monthly e-newsletter or catch up with our latest informative CopeLink blogs. Cancer Care offers helpful support services, which are provided by its professionally trained staff of experienced oncology social workers who are there to assist folks like you in dealing with the many issues which arise from the diagnosis of lung cancer, including assistance with emotional issues in which they assess clients and provide appropriate, helpful in interventions, issues and in terms of practical issues such as financial assistance to Cancer Care's limited financial assistance program and referrals to the Cancer Care Copay Foundation and other financial resources. Resource referral in which our social workers refer folks to the many organizations and agencies established to help cancer patients. Issues in navigating the system in which cancer care social workers assist people in understanding how to best manage the many new relationships involved in healthcare and communications issues in which our workers are skilled at helping folks learn how to best communicate with their health care providers, employers, friends, and family members about their new situation. Cancer care social workers provide this assistance in a variety of user-friendly settings, such as at Cancer Care's national office and its regional offices for folks living in the tri-state New York metropolitan area, where folks can receive individual and group counseling services face-to-face or over the phone nationwide where people from across the nation can find immediate assistance by contacting the Cancer Care Helpline at 1-800-813-HOPE, HOPE. And they can gain longer-term assistance through individual telephone counseling with a cancer care social worker as well as connecting with other people in our professionally facilitated telephone support groups. In addition, Connections are made online where people from across the country share concerns in professionally-led online support groups, which are available 24-7 for participation. Now, I've just mentioned our support groups three times, and that's because lung cancer patients or caregivers support is a very, get a very special opportunity in joining a support group, opportunities to interact with others who really understand what you're going through opportunities to learn from others about treatments, side effects, and how they cope with the physical and emotional distress caused by their lung cancer. Opportunities to express your feelings to others who listen to what you have to say and truly care for you. You know, it's always interesting to hear group members say, I should have joined this group long ago. Think about joining a cancer care support group now. You know, I'm sure none of us ever expected to find ourselves moved to the neighborhood of lung cancer. But now that you're here, be assured that Cancer Care, like that good neighbor, is there with you. 
Connect with us at www.cancercare.org or by calling us at 1-800-813-HOPE. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Wynne. That was really wonderful. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And uh, excellent presentation. Thank you. And now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And I will also, at the end of the call, explain if we don't get your question, how you can call and get your answers to your questions. So let's see how many we can take right now. So Stephanie? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone to ask a question. And we have a question from one of our online participants from Lainey. Um, uh, Lainey, um, have you ever heard that some patients develop lactose intolerance while on chemotherapy? Um, so um, Dr. Wakeley and Ms. Uh, Elizondo, could you address that question, please? <clears throat> In a general way. Um, just okay. Um, so this is uh, Heather Wakeley. Um, so you can get changes in um, tolerance of certain medications. Um, I've not had any of my patients who were previously tolerating um, lactose become lactose intolerant. Lactose intolerance, of course, is a, is a fairly common um, is within the Asian community. And a lot of the really high calorie, high protein food supplements that we talk about with folks, um, such as Ensure and Boost, many of those can be somewhat um, milk-based, milk, milk product-based, and so I talk a lot with folks about using milk substitutes uh, to get those high-protein shakes like soy milk or almond milk, and there are also a lot of products that are uh, sort of the clear formulations that don't have any, um, any dairy in them, so those can be things that can be better tolerated by folks who are lactose intolerant, but to get back to the specific question, I've not had any of my patients personally go through that sort of a transition while undergoing any therapy for lung cancer. Thank you. And um, Ms. Elizondo, do you want to comment on that as well? Um, sure. Um, um, I'll just add to that saying that, you know, if, let's say, diarrhea is one of the side effects of your treatment, some you know, sometimes dairy products might make your diarrhea worse than, you know, going back to Dr. Wakeley, you know, doing lactose-free uh, products like the soy milk or almond milk, things of that nature. Um, might be options for you too. And there's Ensure Clear and the Boost Breeze and things that um, are more clear liquid based. And then of course you can always make your own shakes and smoothies and things like that. Um, add peanut butter to a, a smoothie um, using the soy milk and just kind of coming up with creative ways to um, get your calories and protein you need to maintain your weight. Thank you so much. And we have another question. Um, for um, uh, from one of our online participants from DOT. Um, actually, um, <clears throat> so it's a question really about the um, research for lung cancer. And the question is, is, is research for lung cancer underfunded due to the stigma of, of um, lung cancer? Um, um, are, is it being funded as actively um, in terms of research as some of the other cancers? Dr. Wakeley, could you address this in a general way? It's a kind of hard question to address, but 
Right, but it's a great question, and it's, it's true, actually, that because of the stigma that still surrounds lung cancer, even though nobody who gets lung cancer deserves to get lung cancer, so it's no different than any other cancer that way, but there's still this stigma. And because of that, people have been afraid to really rally behind lung cancer and the lung cancer cause, and that includes the awareness but also the funding. And if you look at the funding that is uh, given to lung cancer compared to other types of cancer relative to the deaths from the disease, it's incredibly underfunded. And so that's slowly changing. There has been a renewed interest in, in helping lung cancer. And many, much of that enthusiasm comes from the fact that we're seeing such big progress. We're seeing so many improvements in what we're able to do to help people with lung cancer that that has led to more enthusiasm to do even more to help. But it's still very much underfunded. Um, and so again, it's really it's about raising awareness. It's about moving beyond that stigma. And we're making slow progress in that direction. Excellent. Thank you. And um, and Dr. Um, Sung, do you want to comment on that as well? I agree. I think that um, part of you know be, having been a smoker uh, had carried some stigma. However, I do um, have to say that um, and looping back to the lung cancer screening trial that's come about only the last couple of years and have a lot more data coming out. And being at the most prestigious journals, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, I do see a big shift in paradigm that the excitement of, you know, be able to effect the survival of a very significant disease is now seeing a lot more support in terms of research, both in, both in prevention, diagnosis, as well as treatment. So I think that there's a lot of hope to be had. Excellent. Thank you. Carolyn, um, this is Wynn. May I, may I address the oh, same question? Yes. Oh, yes, please, Wynn. Yeah, yeah, um, if, if you feel strongly about the, the stigma, there is things that you can be doing, and, and there are, there are you know, several dozen organizations, lung cancer advocacy organizations in the U.S. where you can work either at, at the state house level or at the, the, the national level um, to o overcome uh, the uh, certain disparities in, in research funding and to increase awareness about lung cancer and, and the folks who have lung cancer and making sure, getting out the word that people who have lung cancer aren't demons. They're real people. They are relatives, friends, neighbors, and it's important to get that word out. Thank you. And did you want to identify the organizations to contact or... I would just identify that there's an organization called LungCan, Lung Cancer Action Network, um, which houses um, many of these advocacy organizations. You can go online to www.lungcan.org uh, to learn more about many of the organizations, some which may be right in your community. Oh, that's excellent. Okay, so thank you, Wynn. That's excellent. Uh, very helpful. Um, and we have a question from one of our um, online participants from Grace. My husband is accidentally found to have stage 4 non-small cell adenocarcinoma with EGFR mutation. What do you recommend the next step be? Um, Dr. Wakeley, could you address this? Sure. So um, I, I assume that... In a general that, way, of course. Um, of course pardon? In a general way, and of course we'll oh, recommend... Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, so I, I'm assuming that this is a, a fairly recent diagnosis. Um, and always devastating for the family when this sort of um, when this illness is discovered. The 
good news is that with finding the EGFR mutation, there are going to be treatment options that don't otherwise exist for patients who don't have that. In general, we recommend that patients who have stage 4 disease who are identified as having one of the activating EGFR mutations, and there are many different EGFR mutations, so I didn't go into all the detail, but the majority of them are ones that are sensitive, very sensitive uh, to one of the EGFR drugs. And I mentioned there are three approved in the United States, erlotinib, gefitinib, and afatinib. The choice of which of those drugs is right for an individual is a discussion that really needs to be had with the care team. There also are trials ongoing looking at combining those drugs, not with each other, but with other agents to try to help them work better and for a longer period of time. And so it's important to ask about clinical trials that might be an option, um, as well as discussing the, the various drugs that are available currently outside of the trials. When those drugs are started, they can work for an extended period of time, and when they're no longer working, there are now newer EGFR drugs that can also be very helpful, and there's always traditional chemotherapy, which even though we have many options besides, um, the chemotherapy still can play a very important role in treatment. So I can't give any specific answers other than the identification of the EGFR mutation in the tumor does provide for opportunity for treatment with those drugs. Excellent. Thank you. And I have a question um, from Eileen, um, one of our online participants. For those non-smoking Asian um, patients who are at high risk for mutations for lung cancer, how can lung cancer be detected earlier in these patients? Would you recommend chest x-rays in these patients? That is a great question. Um, as I alluded to earlier right now, um, Lung cancer screening or early detection has only been shown to be of benefit to patients with the highest risk group. And one really have to be reminded that smoking is still the number one cause of lung cancer that is about 90, 90%, whereas air pollution or radon, it's really comprised of about one to two percentages. So it would be quite difficult for people, for us to be able to do a societal screening for all the people with um, even a family history of lung cancer because we just don't have all the facts and data in terms of the genetic acquisition of lung cancer yet. So um, because of the high possibility that, that a patient that of Asian descent or have a family member who has a lung cancer but never smoked, uh, that there could be a one in four chances that there will be what we call a false positive. What that means is that we can find that there's a nodule, but that nodule turns out to be completely benign, and that actually will raise unnecessary anxiety and unnecessary procedure, perhaps, and even unnecessary surgery. So right now on the balance sheet, we do not actually recommend patients uh, or family members or uh, uh, anybody who don't belong in the highest risk group to undergo lung cancer screening. Excellent. Thank you. And another question, uh, actually, well, actually, we have another question, a uh, telephone question. So, um, Stephanie? Our question comes from Diana L. Your line is open. Uh, yeah, I just wanted a, um, a clarification what the EGFR is again. And um, I think Dr. Stone clarified that um, because my mother had a CAT scan done 
um, mainly because she fell. Uh, so she had a neck and chest scan done, and they did find a nodule. She's like 85 years old and doesn't want to do anything. Um, so she's not in the high-risk population, so I'm kind of not sure what my next step ought to be with her if she doesn't want to proceed uh, to, find, to do a biopsy. Actually, two questions. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I don't know what the letters EGFR um, stand for. Okay. Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, we're going to answer your question in a general way and see if we can't have some of our other members of the team address it as well. Dr. Wakely, could you just define the EGFR in terms of what that means? And sure. Um, so EGFR stands for epidermal growth factor receptor, and that's a gene um, which produces a protein. Uh, which is on uh, the surface of a lot of, um, of cancer cells. Uh, well, should clarify, it's on the surface of a lot of normal tissue as well, the regular EGFR. So we find it in lung, we find it in skin, um, and some other organs. However, for some patients with lung cancer, the reason they have lung cancer is that there is a gene mutation in the EGFR, which led the EGFR protein, instead of kind of being an on-off switch, to being turned on all the time, and that's what's driving the cancer in patients with that gene mutation in their tumor. So it stands for epidermal growth factor receptor. Um, to get at the other question that you raised um, about your mother, of course, it's hard to do any specifics, but there are um, algorithms for following nodules to help us know whether or not they're concerning. One way that we do that is we see if the patient's person's ever had previous chest x-rays or scans to see if there's evidence that that's been there for a while. If it's new and someone's reluctant to have anything done, again, depending on the size, there can be decisions about when you might want to take another look if someone's hesitant to get a biopsy. Um, also, to, to reassure your mother, if she's afraid that if they find a cancer, she's going to be asked to do a surgery or something she doesn't want to do, that if, if there is a lung cancer, and we certainly don't know that, there are many, many, many reasons people can get a lung nodule that's not cancer. But if a cancer is identified in someone who has a small nodule, instead of having to do surgery, a lot of times now we can do a focused type of radiation, which has very minimal side effects. So knowing what something is, is usually better than not. Um, going through a biopsy is, is a big thing for people to go through, though it's usually without any sort of complications, but obviously something that can be scary. Um, but the decision about whether or not a biopsy is needed usually requires additional imaging, either looking back to see if there's some from before or making a plan to get another scan done in a certain number of months. And I don't know if Dr. Sung wants to comment on that further. Dr. Sung? Yes, uh, so that is uh, absolutely correct. Um, one, when we, uh, in fact, most of the lung nodules that we see in our practice are all found by accident, and your mother's story doesn't deviate much at all to the majority of patients, whether they have abdominal pain, that they did a CAT scan, they cut at the bottom of the lung and cut that there's a nodule there. I think one has to be aware that the majority of nodules that we find even in smokers, are still benign. And having evidence that there was a nodule before is very helpful. And also, additionally, just having a nodule 
it's sort of the most broad way of looking at nodule, but actually there are a lot of other characteristics of nodule that we looked at. There's um, whether there's actually some calcium deposit in the nodule, whether nodule shape, contour, size, location, or any history of associated findings of the lung itself, those are all very helpful in terms of determining whether we even think that the biopsy is uh, needed. Um, in fact, most of the nodules found by the screening trial, in fact, more than 80% of the nodules that found by, found by screening, the most common approach, meaning 80%, is to have a subsequent CAT scan that's low dose. That is neither too invasive, and I think that some patients may worry about the radiation dose, but nowadays with the much improved technology, the dosing of CAT scan now is quite low and should and, and the benefits far outweighs risk. Excellent, thank you. And um, and and Wynn, do you want to comment on this, just from a psychosocial perspective, where family members are often trying to plan for a family member? Yeah, and, and I I think it, it's important to you know, uh, tread tread carefully uh, that and re respect the family members. Um, uh, wishes it initially and to try and, and get a sense of um, what it is that makes them uh, object to the biopsy or to uh, considering a, a treatment. And uh, again, I, I would echo Dr. Song in, in terms of it's better, better to know, okay, what we're, you're dealing with and uh, kind of encourage that in, in a very gentle way rather than trying to force or uh, threaten someone to carry on. Thank you. And we have a question um, from another online participant, a specific question. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Wakeley to just to address this in a general way. My wife is um, Asian, 44 years old, diagnosed uh, 2.5 years ago with stage 4 adenocarcinoma due to pleural metastasis. Never a smoker and never tested pos positive for EGFR. However, she had a major response to Tosiva for 16 months after first-line chemo and now on the fatinib and Cetuximab um, combo, and that works well. Do you think she is EGFR positive? Thanks and blessings. So again, um, Dr. Um, Wakeley, I realize you can't answer the specifics of all the detail here. If you could give some guidelines to this call, uh, to Don, so that he could then take that back to his um, treating healthcare team. Are there any thoughts that you have that might be helpful? Yeah, so in this scenario where there's a, a patient who has responded very well to one of the EGFR tyrosine kinase drugs, which was the initial orlotinib, for 16 months, um, that pretty much tells us that this is definitely um, EGFR-mutated lung cancer. You can have disease control with the EGFR-targeted agents in patients who do not have EGFR mutations in their tumors, but to have a response like that for 16 months pretty much tells us that that's what's going on. The patient is now on a combination of afatinib and cetuximab, and that was the first combination regimen that was found to work when the initial EGFR drugs stopped when they reached the conclusion of how long they would work. Um, so that's great that that's working for her now and also speaks to the likelihood that she has an EGFR mutation. Of course, I, I don't know the specifics around this, but what we're doing more and more now is at the time that a treatment that's targeted stops working, we will encourage the patient to get a repeat biopsy because figuring out why the drugs have stopped working can be really helpful in trying to figure out the next treatment. So I'm not advocating for that right now and obviously don't know the details, but it would be something to bring up with the care team to say, hey, we don't know for sure about EGFR. It seems 
based on the clinical scenario that we do, but in trying to figure out next steps because there are these new third generation EGFR drugs, probably getting a biopsy at that point or in the context of a trial would be very helpful. Excellent, thank you. And we have one late-breaking question here. So um, I'm going to extend the call just a minute or two. Um, is there a higher incidence of lung cancer in regions that do not have strict environmental controls that is spreading across the globe? If so, will this be the impetus to allocate more funds to lung cancer based on environmental impact? I have to say these questions are extraordinary. Dr. Um, Wakeley and Dr. Sung, do you want to comment on this question? Um, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question, and, and absolutely. I mean, we do know that when you can cut smoking rates, you can cut lung cancer, as we've demonstrated in California with our strict anti-smoking laws. But we also know that smoking's not the whole story. Um, many, many of my patients have never smoked. And there you went into questions about why, and is it air pollution? Is it some other factor? And there's been a lot of research trying to tease that out. Um, air pollution does play some role, but it's very hard to prove. But however, we do all feel that there is a significant role there, and the more resources that we can allocate towards understanding it, I think the stronger voice we'll be able to have to say we need to reduce the pollution. It is leading to health issues, including lung cancer. Thank you. Excellent. And Dr. Sung, do you want to add anything? Uh, yeah. So smoking is still the number one cause, as uh, we mentioned, approximately 90 or more than that. Uh, the, uh, the United States, uh, it's really great in terms of having disclosure in terms of radon, um, but I do think that that is one of the more known and um, verified uh, carcinogens. So there may be in other countries that may not have strict uh, environmental rules, those may come into play. Uh, but I think that it is important to keep in mind that there are many factors whether there's environmentally or um, other um, reasons that would be risk factors, and those are all the things that, in my opinion, that research really should look into in terms of what are some of the causative factors other than smoking or whether they are really interacting with smoking to make risk of lung cancer even worse. One good example would be asbestos exposure from an occupational angle. Uh, you know, I, I realize we have many more questions. This is an extraordinary call, extraordinary speakers. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked such really, really fantastic questions. Um, and we could go on all afternoon, but this is an hour workshop. And I want to remind all of you that um, in planning this program, that we do recognize that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one program, plus you have many questions that you still may want to ask or may think of in a couple of days and want to have a connection to contact. So. Let me first address that part of it. If you continue to have like some medically focused questions that you really would like answers to, I really recommend that you call the National Cancer Institute's um, toll-free number at 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. However, if you have questions about coping with the financial costs of uh, lung cancer, of um, if you have questions about just um, the practical issues, emotional concerns, social concerns, disruption of your life, just wanting to talk with someone, then I would suggest you call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers and our Hope Line. And they are here to help you with practical issues, 
financial concerns, um, counseling services, free counseling services, free online and telephone support groups, workshops like this one, uh, publications, and many other resources that we have available to you. Perhaps most importantly, as we're about to conclude the call, I would not want anyone to think that you're alone in coping with uh, your concerns about lung cancer in the Asian community, lung cancer in general, or cancer in general. I want you to now know that you are part of Cancer Care by being on this call, and that we are simply a telephone call, or you can visit our website as well, that we are simply that close to you. And we do want you to take advantage of these services. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a fine day. And I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. Really thanks both to our speakers, but also to all of you. You've really asked rather brilliant questions, so thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.